Chapter 50, Part 6 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 5, Chapter 50, Part 6. The Choice of Jerusalem for the first Qebla of prayer, discovers the early propensity of Mohammed in favor of the Jews, and happy would it have been for their temporal interest had they recognized in the Arabian prophet the hope of Israel and the promised Messiah. Their obstinacy converted his friendship into implacable hatred, with which he pursued that unfortunate people to the last moment of his life, and in the double character of an apostle and a conqueror, his persecution was extended to both worlds. The Kanoika dwelt at Medina under the protection of the city. He seized the occasion of an accidental tumult and summoned them to embrace his religion or contend with him in battle. Alas, replied the trembling Jews, we are ignorant of the use of arms, but we persevere in the faith and worship of our fathers. Why wilt thou reduce us to the necessity of a just defense? The unequal conflict was terminated in fifteen days and it was with extreme reluctance that Mohammed yielded to the importunity of his allies, and consented to spare the lives of the captives. But their riches were confiscated, their arms became more effectual in the hands of the Mussulmans, and a wretched colony of seven hundred exiles was driven, with their wives and children, to implore a refuge on the confines of Syria. The Nadharites were more guilty, since they conspired in a friendly interview to assassinate the prophet. He besieged their castle, three miles from Medina, but their resolute defense obtained an honorable capitulation, and the garrison, sounding their trumpets and beating their drums, was permitted to depart with the honors of war. The Jews had excited and joined the war of the Koresh. No sooner had the nations retired from the ditch than Mohammed, without laying aside his armor, marched on the same day to extirpate the hostile race of the children of Koreada. After resistance of twenty-five days, they surrendered at discretion. They trusted to the intercession of their old allies of Medina. They could not be ignorant that fanaticism obliterates the feelings of humanity. A venerable elder, to whose judgment they appealed, pronounced the sentence of their death. Seven hundred Jews were dragged in chains to the marketplace of the city. They descended alive into the grave prepared for their execution and burial and the apostle beheld with an inflexible eye the slaughter of his helpless enemies. Their sheep and camels were inherited by the Muslims. Three hundred cuirasses, five hundred pikes, a thousand lances, composed the most useful portion of the spoil. Six days' journey to the northeast of Medina, the ancient and wealthy town of Kaibar, was the seat of the Jewish power in Arabia. The territory, a fertile spot in the desert, was covered with plantations and cattle, and protected by eight castles, some of which were esteemed of impregnable strength. The forces of Mohammed consisted of two hundred horse and fourteen hundred foot. In the succession of eight regular and painful sieges, they were exposed to danger and fatigue and hunger, and the most undaunted chiefs despaired of the event. The apostle revived their faith and courage by the example of Ali, on whom he bestowed the surname of the Lion of God. Perhaps we may believe that a Hebrew champion of gigantic stature was cloven to the chest by his irresistible scimitar, but we cannot praise the modesty of romance, 
which represents him as tearing from its hinges the gate of a fortress and wielding the ponderous buckler in his left hand. After the reduction of the castles, the town of Kaibar submitted to the yoke. The chief of the tribe was tortured, in the presence of Mohammed, to force a confession of his hidden treasure. The industry of the shepherds and husbandmen was rewarded with a precarious toleration. They were permitted, so long as it should please the conqueror, to improve their patrimony in equal shares for his emolument and their own. Under the reign of Omar, the Jews of Kaibar were transplanted to Syria, and the caliph alleged the injunction of his dying master that one and the true religion should be professed in his native land of Arabia. Five times each day the eyes of Mohammed were turned towards Mecca, and he was urged by the most sacred and powerful motives to revisit, as a conqueror, the city and the temple from whence he had been driven as an exile. The Kaaba was present to his waking and sleeping fancy. An idle dream was translated into vision and prophecy. He unfurled the holy banner, and a rash promise of success too hastily dropped from the lips of the apostle. His march from Medina to Mecca displayed the peaceful and solemn pomp of a pilgrimage. Seventy camels, chosen and bedecked for sacrifice, preceded the van. The sacred territory was respected, and the captives were dismissed without ransom to proclaim his clemency and devotion. But no sooner did Muhammad descend into the plain, within a day's journey of the city, than he exclaimed, They have clothed themselves with the skin of tigers. The numbers and resolution of the Koreish opposed his progress, and the roving Arabs of the desert might desert or betray a leader whom they had followed for the hopes of spoil. The intrepid fanatic sunk into a cool and cautious politician. He waived in the treaty his title of Apostle of God, concluded with the Koreish and their allies a truce of ten years, engaged to restore the fugitives of Mecca who should embrace his religion, and stipulated only for the ensuing year the humble privilege of entering the city as a friend, and of remaining three days to accomplish the rites of the pilgrimage. A cloud of shame and sorrow hung on the retreat of the Mussulmans, and their disappointment might justly accuse the failure of a prophet who had so often appealed to the evidence of success. The faith and hope of the pilgrims were rekindled by the prospect of Mecca. Their swords were sheathed. Seven times in the footsteps of the apostle they encompassed the Kaaba. The Koreish had retired to the hills, and Mohammed, after the customary sacrifice, evacuated the city on the fourth day. The people was edified by his devotion. The hostile chiefs were awed, or divided, or seduced, and both Khalid and Amru, the future conquerors of Syria and Egypt, most seasonably deserted the sinking cause of idolatry. The power of Mohammed was increased by the submission of the Arabian tribes. Ten thousand soldiers were assembled for the conquest of Mecca, and the idolaters, the weaker party, were easily convicted of violating the truce. Enthusiasm and discipline impelled the march, and preserved the secret, till the blaze of ten thousand fires proclaimed to the astonished Koreish the design, the approach, and the irresistible force of the enemy. The haughty Abu Sofian presented the keys of the city, admired the variety of arms and ensigns that passed before him in review, and observed that the son of Abdallah had acquired a mighty kingdom, and confessed, under the scimitar of Omar, that he was the apostle of the true God. The return of Marius and Sulla was stained with the blood of the Romans. The revenge of Mohammed was stimulated by religious zeal, 
and his injured followers were eager to execute or to prevent the order of a massacre. Instead of indulging their passions and his own, the victorious exile forgave the guilt and united the factions of Mecca. His troops, in three divisions, marched into the city. Eight and twenty of the inhabitants were slain by the sword of Khalid. Eleven men and six women were prescribed by the sentence of Muhammad, but he blamed the cruelty of his lieutenant, and several of the most obnoxious victims were indebted for their lives to his clemency or contempt. The chiefs of the Koreish were prostrate at his feet. What mercy can you expect from the man whom you have wronged? We confide in the generosity of our kinsmen. And you shall not confide in vain. Be gone. You are safe. You are free. The people of Mecca deserved their pardon by the profession of Islam, and after an exile of seven years, the fugitive missionary was enthroned as the prince and prophet of his native country. But the three hundred and sixty idols of the Kaaba were ignominiously broken, the house of God was purified and adorned, as an example to future times. The apostle again fulfilled the duties of a pilgrim, and a perpetual law was enacted that no unbeliever should dare set his foot on the territory of the holy city. The conquest of Mecca determined the faith and obedience of the Arabian tribes, who, according to the vicissitudes of fortune, had obeyed or disregarded the eloquence or the arms of the prophet. Indifference for rights and opinions still marks the character of the Bedouins, and they might accept, as loosely as they hold, the doctrine of the Koran. Yet an obstinate remnant still adhered to the religion and liberty of their ancestors, and the war of Honian derived a proper appellation from the idols whom Mahomet had vowed to destroy, and whom the confederates of Taif had sworn to defend. Four thousand pagans advanced with secrecy and speed to surprise the conqueror. They pitied and despised the supine negligence of the Koresh, but they depended on the wishes, and perhaps the aid, of a people who had so lately renounced their gods, and bowed beneath the yoke of their enemy. The banners of Medina and Mecca were displayed by the prophet. A crowd of Bedouins increased the strength or numbers of the army, and twelve thousand Mussulmans entertained a rash and sinful presumption of their invincible strength. They descended without precaution into the valley of Honain. The heights had been occupied by the archers and slingers of the confederates. Their numbers were oppressed, their discipline was confounded, their courage was appalled, and the Koresh smiled at their impending destruction. The prophet, on his white mule, was encompassed by the enemies. He attempted to rush against their spears in search of a glorious death. Ten of his faithful companions interposed their weapons and their breasts. Three of these fell dead at his feet. "'Oh, my brethren!' he repeatedly cried, with sorrow and indignation. "'I am the son of Abdallah. I am the apostle of truth. Oh, man, stand fast in the faith!' O oh God, send down thy succor. His uncle Abbas, who, like the heroes of Homer, excelled in the loudness of his voice, made the valley resound with the recital of the gifts and promises of God. The flying Moslems returned from all sides to the holy standard, and Mahomet observed with pleasure that the furnace was again rekindled. 
his conduct and example restored the battle and he animated his victorious troops to inflict a merciless revenge on the authors of their shame from the field of honain he marched without delay to the siege of taif sixty miles to the southeast of mecca a fortress of strength whose fertile lands produced the fruits of syria in the midst of the arabian desert a friendly tribe instructed i know not how in the art of sieges supplied him with a train of battering rams and military engines with a body of five hundred artificers but it was in vain that he offered freedom to the slaves of taif that he violated his own laws by the extirpation of the fruit trees that the ground was opened by the miners that the breach was assaulted by the troops after a siege of twenty days the prophet sounded a retreat but he retreated with a song of devout triumph and affected to pray for the repentance and safety of the unbelieving city the spoils of this fortunate expedition amounted to six thousand captives twenty-four thousand camels forty thousand sheep and four thousand ounces of silver a tribe who had fought at honain redeemed their prisoners by the sacrifice of their idols but mahomet compensated the loss by resigning to the soldiers his fifth of the plunder and wished for their sake that he possessed as many head of cattle as there were trees in the province of tahama instead of chastising the disaffection of the Quraysh, he endeavoured to cut out their tongues his own expression and to secure their attachment by a superior measure of liberality abu sofian alone was presented with three hundred camels and twenty ounces of silver and mecca was sincerely converted to the profitable religion of the koran the fugitives and auxiliaries complain that they who had borne the burden were neglected in the season of victory alas replied their artful leader suffer me to conciliate these recent enemies these doubtful proselytes by the gift of some perishable goods to your guard i entrust my life and fortunes you are the companions of my exile of my kingdom and of my paradise he was followed by the deputies of taif who dreaded the repetition of a siege grant us o apostle of god a truce of three years with the toleration of our ancient worship not a month not an hour excuse us at least from the obligation of prayer without prayer religion is of no avail they submitted in silence their temples were demolished and the same sentence was executed on all the idols of arabia his lieutenants on the shores of the red sea the ocean and the gulf of persia were saluted by the acclamations of a faithful people and the ambassadors who knelt before the throne of medina were as numerous says the arabian proverb as the dates that fall from the maturity of a palm tree the nation submitted to the god and the sceptre of mohammed the opprobrious name of tribute was abolished the spontaneous or reluctant oblations of alms and tithes were applied to the service of religion and one hundred and fourteen thousand moslems accompanied the last pilgrimage of the apostle when heraclius returned in triumph from the persian war he entertained at emesa one of the ambassadors of mohammed who invited the princes and nations of the earth to the profession of islam on this foundation the zeal of the arabians has supposed the secret conversion of the christian emperor 
the vanity of the Greeks has feigned a personal visit of the prince of Medina, who accepted from the royal bounty a rich domain and a secure retreat in the province of Syria. But the friendship of Heraclius and Mohammed was of short continuance. The new religion had inflamed, rather than assuaged, the rapacious spirit of the Saracens, and the murder of an envoy afforded a decent pretense for invading, with three thousand soldiers, the territory of Palestine, that extends to the eastward of the Jordan. The holy banner was entrusted to Zaid, and such was the discipline or enthusiasm of the rising sect, that the noblest chiefs served without reluctance under the slave of the prophet. On the event of his decease, Jafar and Abdallah were successively substituted to the command, and if the three should perish in the war, the troops were authorized to elect their general. The three leaders were slain in the Battle of Muta, the first military action which tried the valor of the Muslims against a foreign enemy. Zaid fell like a soldier in the foremost ranks. The death of Jafar was heroic and memorable. He lost his right hand. He shifted the standard to his left. The left was severed from his body. He embraced the standard with his bleeding stumps till he was transfixed to the ground with fifty honorable wounds. Advance, cried Abdallah, who stepped into the vacant place. Advance with confidence. Either victory or paradise is our own. The lance of a Roman decided the alternative, but the falling standard was rescued by Khalid, the proselyte of Mecca. Nine swords were broken in his hand, and his valor withstood and repulsed the superior numbers of the Christians. In the nocturnal council of the camp, he was chosen to command. His skillful evolutions of the ensuing day ensured either the victory or the retreat of the Saracens, and Khalid is renowned among his brethren and his enemies by the glorious appellation of the Sword of God. In the pulpit, Muhammad described, with prophetic rapture, the crowns of the blessed martyrs. But in private, he betrayed the feelings of human nature. He was surprised as he wept over the daughter of Zaid. What do I see? said the astonished votary. You see, replied the apostle, a friend who is deploring the loss of his most faithful friend. After the conquest of Mecca, the sovereign of Arabia affected to prevent the hostile preparations of Heraclius, and solemnly proclaimed war against the Romans, without attempting to disguise the hardships and dangers of the enterprise. The Muslims were discouraged. They alleged the want of money, of horses, of provisions, the season of harvest, and the intolerable heat of the summer. Hell is much hotter, said the indignant prophet. He disdained to compel their service but on his return he admonished the most guilty by an excommunication of fifty days. Their desertion enhanced the merit of Abu Bekr, Othman, and the faithful companions who devoted their lives and fortunes. And Muhammad displayed his banner at the head of ten thousand horse and twenty thousand foot. Painful indeed was the distress of the march. Lassitude and thirst were aggravated by the scorching and pestilential winds of the desert. Ten men rode by turns on the same camel, they were reduced to the shameful necessity of drinking the water from the belly of that useful animal. In the midway, ten days' journey from Medina to Damascus, they reposed near the grove and fountain of Tabuk. Beyond that place, Mohammed declined the prosecution of the war. He declared himself satisfied with the peaceful intentions. He was more probably daunted by the martial army of the emperor of the east. But the active and intrepid Khalid spread around the terror of his name, 
and the prophet received the submission of the tribes and cities, from the Euphrates to Isla at the head of the Red Sea. To his Christian subjects, Muhammad readily granted the security of their persons, the freedom of their trade, the property of their goods, and the toleration of their worship. The weakness of their Arabian brethren had restrained them from opposing his ambition. The disciples of Jesus were endeared to the enemy of the Jews, and it was the interest of a conqueror to propose a fair capitulation to the most powerful religion of the earth. Till the age of sixty-three years, the strength of Mohammed was equal to the temporal and spiritual fatigues of his mission. His epileptic fits, an absurd calumny of the Greeks, would be an object of pity rather than abhorrence. But he seriously believed that he was poisoned at Kaibar by the revenge of a Jewish female. During four years, the health of the prophet declined. His infirmities increased, but his mortal disease was a fever of fourteen days, which deprived him by intervals of the use of reason. As soon as he was conscious of his danger, he edified his brethren by the humility of his virtue or penitence. If there be any man, said the apostle from the pulpit, whom I have unjustly scourged, I submit my own back to the lash of retaliation. Have I aspersed the reputation of a Mussulman? Let him proclaim my faults in the face of the congregation. Has any one been despoiled of his goods? The little that I possess shall compensate the principal and the interest of the debt. Yes, replied a voice from the crowd. I am entitled to three drachms of silver. Mohammed heard the complaint, satisfied the demand, and thanked his creditor for accusing him in this world rather than at the day of judgment. He beheld with temperate firmness the approach of death enfranchised his slaves, seventeen men as they are named, and eleven women, minutely directed the order of his funeral, and moderated the lamentations of his weeping friends, on whom he bestowed the benediction of peace. Till the third day before his death, he regularly performed the function of public prayer. The choice of Abu Bekr to supply his place appeared to mark that ancient and faithful friend as his successor in the sacerdotal and regal office but he prudently declined the risk and envy of a more explicit nomination. At a moment when his faculties were visibly impaired, he called for pen and ink to write, or, more properly, to dictate a divine book, the sum and accomplishment of all his revelations. A dispute arose in the chamber whether he should be allowed to supersede the authority of the Koran, and the prophet was forced to reprove the indecent venomance of his disciples if the slightest credit may be afforded to the traditions of his wives and companions, he maintained in the bosom of his family and to the last moments of his life the dignity of an apostle and the faith of an enthusiast, described the visits of Gabriel, who bid an everlasting farewell to the earth, and expressed his lively confidence, not only of the mercy, but of the favor of the Supreme Being. In a familiar discourse, he had mentioned his special prerogative, that the angel of death was not allowed to take his soul till he had respectfully asked the permission of the prophet. The request was granted, and Mohammed immediately fell into the agony of his dissolution. His head was reclined on the lap of Aisha, the best beloved of all his wives. He fainted with the violence of pain. Recovering his spirits, he raised his eyes towards the roof of the house, and with a steady look, though a faltering voice, uttered the last broken, though articulate words. O oh God, pardon my sins. Yes, I come. 
among my fellow citizens on high. And thus peacefully expired on a carpet spread upon the floor. An expedition for the conquest of Syria was stopped by this mournful event. The army halted at the gates of Medina. The chiefs were assembled round their dying master. The city, more especially the house of the prophet, was a scene of clamorous sorrow or silent despair. Fanaticism alone could suggest a ray of hope and consolation. How can he be dead? Our witness, our intercessor, our mediator with God. By God he is not dead. Like Moses and Jesus, he is wrapped in a holy trance, and speedily he will return to his faithful people. The evidence of sense was disregarded, and Omar, unsheathing his scimitar, threatened to strike off the heads of the infidels who should dare to affirm that the prophet was no more. The tumult was appeased by the weight and moderation of Abu Bekr. Is it Mohammed, said he to Omar and the multitude, or the God of Mohammed whom you worship? The God of Mohammed liveth forever, but the apostle was a mortal like ourselves, and, according to his own prediction, he has experienced the common fate of mortality. He was piously interred by the hands of his nearest kinsmen, on the same spot on which he expired. Medina has been sanctified by the death and the burial of Mohammed, and the innumerable pilgrims of Mecca often turn aside from the way to bow in voluntary devotion before the simple tomb of the prophet. At the conclusion of the life of Mohammed, it may perhaps be expected that I should balance his faults and virtues, that I should decide whether the title of enthusiast or impostor more properly belongs to that extraordinary man. Had I been intimately conversant with the son of Abdallah, the task would still be difficult and the success uncertain. At the distance of twelve centuries, I darkly contemplate his shade through a cloud of religious incense. And could I truly delineate the portrait of an hour, the fleeting resemblance would not equally apply to the solitary of Mount Hera, to the preacher of Mecca, and to the conqueror of Arabia. The author of a mighty revolution appears to have been endowed with a pious and contemplative disposition. So soon as marriage had raised him above the pressure of want, he avoided the paths of ambition and avarice. Until the age of forty he lived with innocence, and would have died without a name. The unity of God is an idea most congenial to nature and reason, and a slight conversation with the Jews and Christians would teach him to despise and detest the idolatry of Mecca. It was the duty of a man and a citizen to impart the doctrine of salvation, to rescue his country from the dominion of sin and error. The energy of a mind incessantly bent on the same object would convert a general obligation into a particular call. The warm suggestions of the understanding or the fancy would be felt as the inspirations of heaven. The labor of thought would expire in rapture and vision, and the inward sensation, the invisible monitor, would be described with the form and attributes of an angel of God. From enthusiasm to imposture, the step is perilous and slippery. The demon of Socrates affords a memorable instance how a wise man may deceive himself how a good man may deceive others, how the conscience may slumber in a mixed and middle state between self-illusion and voluntary fraud. Charity may believe that the original motives of Muhammad were those of pure and genuine benevolence, but a human missionary is incapable of cherishing the obstinate unbelievers who reject his claims, despise his arguments, and persecute his life. He might forgive his personal adversaries, 
he might lawfully hate the enemies of God. The stern passions of pride and revenge were kindled in the bosom of Mohammed, and he sighed, like the prophet of Nineveh, for the destruction of the rebels whom he had condemned. The injustice of Mecca and the choice of Medina transformed the citizen into a prince, the humble preacher into the leader of armies, but his sword was consecrated by the example of the saints. And the same God who afflicts a sinful world with pestilence and earthquakes might inspire for their conversion or chastisement the valor of his servants. In the exercise of political government he was compelled to abate of the stern rigor of fanaticism, to comply in some measure with the prejudices and passions of his followers, and to employ even the vices of mankind as the instruments of their salvation. The use of fraud and perfidy, of cruelty and injustice, were often subservient to the propagation of the faith, and Mohammed commanded or approved the assassination of the Jews and idolaters who had escaped from the field of battle. By the repetition of such acts, the character of Mohammed must have been gradually stained, and the influence of such pernicious habits would be poorly compensated by the practice of the personal and social virtues which are necessary to maintain the reputation of a prophet among his sectaries and friends. Of his last years, ambition was the ruling passion, and a politician will suspect that he secretly smiled, the victorious imposture, at the enthusiasm of his youth and the credulity of his proselytes. A philosopher will observe that their credulity and his success would tend more strongly to fortify the assurance of his divine mission, that his interest and religion were inseparably connected, and that his conscience would be soothed by the persuasion that he alone was absolved by the deity from the obligation of positive and moral laws. If he retained any vestige of his native innocence, the sins of Muhammad may be allowed as an evidence of his sincerity. In the support of truth, the arts of fraud and fiction may be deemed less criminal, and he would have started at the foulness of the means, had he not been satisfied of the importance and justice of the end. Even in a conqueror or a priest, I can surprise a word or action of unaffected humanity. In the decree of Mohammed that, in the sale of captives, the mothers should never be separated from their children, may suspend or moderate the censure of the historian. End of chapter 50, part 6